Why does our society have a distrust for those who do good? Why are we so afraid of being offended or put down? What is good anyway? Today on Telling the Truth, Stuart Briscoe is once again showing you how you can think clearly in a messed up world. And his focus now is how to think clearly about good. He'll get started in just a moment. Your partnership is vital to keep God's word going out all over the world through Telling the Truth. So as thanks for your support today, we'll send you Stuart Briscoe's six-message series, Thinking Clearly in a Messed Up World. Request your copy when you give today and discover how God's Spirit is working within you to renew your mind and transform your life, no matter what's happening around you. Call 1-800-889-5388. That's 1-800-889-5388. Or you can give online at tellingthetruth.org. Now, here's Stuart with how to think clearly about what's good on today's Telling the Truth. You'll notice in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, we read, Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And you'll notice at the end of that reading, the final verse says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, the, the point is, the apostle is talking about what is good and what is evil. Here's a very odd thing that I've noticed. That if you talk about doing good, people get a little nervous because in our culture as a whole, they don't like do-gooders. Do-gooders are people who sort of interfere. Do-gooders are people who suggest that things aren't as they should be and that they know how they should be done. And so people don't like that because they feel that they're being put down. Now, I want to suggest to you that we need to do some thinking about this because the Bible is very clear. It says we're to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. We're not to be overcome by evil, but we're to overcome evil with good. Now, it's rather obvious that if we're going to do that, we better make sure that we're clear about what is good and what is evil. So first of all, let me talk to you about clarifying the good. Now, you'll remember that the Apostle Paul says that we should not have our thinking pressed into the mold of the world in which we live, but that we should have our thinking renewed. What that means, of course, is we need to be alert to secular views of what's good, And we need to be alert to scriptural views of what's good, and we need to know the difference. Now, obviously, there are many different opinions about what is good. Some people will say, well, it's all relative. There isn't such a thing as that which is good and that which is bad. They would say, if you look around the world, you'll find that people act in different ways. And some people in one situation would say such and such a thing is good, but other people in a different situation would say that particular thing is bad. Well, there's no question that that often is true. However, there's something we need to notice very carefully about this. Even when people will sometimes disagree about what is good, it is often the application of a certain principle that they're disagreeing on, and the principle underlying it, they are agreed on. There are some people who say that which is good is entirely up to the individual to decide. What is good for me may not be good for you, but I'm a very tolerant, open person, and so I would expect you to be tolerant and open with me. Don't impose your views on me. I will not impose my views on you. 
The problem, of course, with this particular approach is that we are not individuals, that we are part of a community, and if we're going to live as community, there have to be some things upon which we are agreed. That's a major problem in our culture at the present time. We can't agree on what it is we're going to agree on. And the reason for that is that we've got hold of this cockeyed idea that somehow or other the individual can determine what is good. That isn't going to work. Many people recognizing that have said, well, it is true that we can't just be concerned about every individual and what they think is good. We have to be concerned about what is best for the most people. Now, that sounds good, and that that is the approach that most Western cultures take at the present time. They try to determine what is best for most people, and what is best for most people is determined to be the good. The problem, of course, is who decides what is the best, and how do you find out what the most people want? And why is it that we assume that the majority has got an inside track on what is good? There are some major questions that are raised by this particular approach. Let me give you an example of how uncertain this idea of that which is best for the most people often works. Now, we need a better way of going about things than the secular ideas of the good. That is, it's all relative, it's up to the individual to decide or what is best for the most people. Over against those ideas, there is what I would call the scriptural view of the good. Now, you remember in Mark's Gospel in the 10th chapter, we have the story of a man who came to Jesus one day and said to him, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the Lord Jesus rather surprisingly responded, Why do you call me good? There is none good but God. Now, of course, the reason Jesus brought that up with him was that that young man thought in actual fact there were two people who were good, Jesus and him. But in actual fact, Jesus was having to point out to him that he had an exaggerated opinion of himself. There is only one who is good. Now, for our purposes, that gives us the clue to our approaching thinking about the good. And it is this. That which is good is that which is found in the character and nature of God. That which is good is not determined by the individual. That which is good is not which the corporate whole decides is the best for the most people. That which is good is not relative. That which is good is that which is innate in the character and person of God. You say, well, that's no help to me. He's sitting up there in heaven being good, and I'm down here. What am I supposed to do? Well, the Bible goes on a step further and tells us this. It tells us that God has given us his law. And in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, we're told this, the law is holy, righteous, and good. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we're told that God's will is good and pleasing and perfect. So it isn't a case of God sitting up in heaven being good. It is God being good and then giving us an insight into his character, his law and his will, in order that we might live in such a way that our behavior is a reflection of the character of God. You're listening to Telling the Truth with Stuart and Joel Briscoe. Today, Stuart is continuing his series, Thinking Clearly in a Messed Up World. 
and he'll be back with much more about how to think clearly about what's good in just a moment. The truth is that each day, from every corner of the planet, we're reminded that things aren't how they're supposed to be. But the Bible offers hope for this brokenness. And in Stuart Briscoe's insightful six-message series, Thinking Clearly in a Messed-Up World, he'll help you see how God works in you to transform and renew your thoughts no matter what's going on around you. You'll dive into Romans 12 to discover how you can respond with wisdom and courage in today's most distressing circumstances. As you sharpen your mind and strengthen your heart through God's truth, you'll discover His grace for navigating the confusion and pitfalls of life in this fallen world. Thinking clearly in a messed up world is our thanks for your gift to help more people experience life through the resources and teachings of telling the truth. So request your copy of Stewart's series when you give today. 1-800-889-5388. That's 1-800-889-5388 or give online at tellingthetruth.org. Now let's get back to Stuart for more about how to think clearly about what's good on today's Telling the Truth. Now then, the Bible also teaches something else. It teaches us that whilst God's will is good and pleasing and perfect, and His law is holy and righteous and good, we in and of ourselves do not do that which is good. In fact, Romans chapter 7 is a passage of Scripture where Paul talks about his own experience. And he says, I desire what is good, but unfortunately, very often, even though I desire what is good, I don't do it. In fact, he says, the good that I would, I don't do, and the evil that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Now, I don't know about you, but let me tell you about me. I have a basic, well, I have two basic problems. One is this that sometimes I know what is the good thing to do, I know perfectly well what is the good thing to do, and I don't want to do it. Well then, somewhere along the line, there's a missing piece to the puzzle. God is good, His law and His will are holy and righteous and good. I, in and of myself, don't have the ability to do it, and I have the ability to do things that I don't want to do, and I know I shouldn't do. What's the missing piece of the puzzle? And here it is. God knows perfectly well what I'm like. He's not shocked, and he's not surprised. In fact, he knows that in and of ourselves, in our own sinful nature, we cannot be good by his standards of goodness. But he is prepared to forgive us. He is prepared to clean out the past, that whole sad history of doing what we shouldn't have done and not doing what we should have done. He is prepared to give us a clean sheet and a fresh start. And you say, what's the point? I'm simply going to revert to the old behavior. There's something else. Jesus died in order that we might be forgiven, and he rose again to live within us by his Holy Spirit in order that he might begin to reproduce newness of life within us. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. And in Galatians chapter 5, you will discover that the fruit of the Spirit includes something called goodness. So goodness now becomes that which is the result of being forgiven by the death of Christ and indwelt by the Spirit of Christ and enabled to live in newness of life. Well, now here's the second thing. One of the old Greek philosophers, I said it was Plato, somebody came and corrected me and said it was Socrates, maybe it was both of them, I'm not sure, I haven't had time to check, but one of those guys, whom I haven't met personally, said this. 
He said that if people are educated towards the good, they will desire it and do it. Now, it doesn't matter whether it was Plato or Socrates or both of them. That is a common misperception. That if people are educated to know what is good, they will automatically desire it and do it. That is the premise upon which a lot of modern education operates. That is the basis upon which many people approach many sociological problems. They say people need to be educated. And if people are educated about drugs, or if people are educated about premarital sex, or if people are educated about AIDS, or if people are educated about all these different problems, then once they understand it, they will desire what is good, and they won't get into that garbage. We got it the wrong way around. We need to be exposing people to what the Word of God says about that which is good, and then we will be enabled by the Holy Spirit to discern between that which is good and evil. But then we need the aid of the Holy Spirit to begin to desire that which is good over against that which is evil. And it doesn't happen naturally. That requires a work of grace in our lives. It needs a transforming enabling of the Spirit of God. But even then, we need His enabling in order that having discerned and desired, we might decide that which is good. And that's an ongoing process. You will find situation by situation that you have the opportunity to go wrong or to do right you will find that every situation that comes along will offer you two options. And if there is no discerning through the Spirit and no desiring through the Spirit, you can bet your bottom dollar there'll be no deciding in the Spirit. So we are utterly dependent upon a life nurtured and nourished in the things of the Spirit, the renewed mind about what is good, rather than simply exposing ourselves to what the secular society is saying about it. If we are in a position to clarify the good, and then in a position to choose the good, then of course we can begin to think in terms of an ongoing basis, clinging to that which is good. In practical terms, what does it mean? That I now begin to cling to what is good and hate what is evil. Well, the key to this is found in the opening phrase of verse 9. This is what it says in the English translation. Love must be sincere. Now, that's pretty straightforward. There are four words there in English. In the original language in which it was written, the Greek language, there are only two words. The first one is agape, the special word for love. The second word is anapokritos, which means non-hypocritical. What it means is that Agape has got to be genuine, it's got to be real, we mustn't be faking it. Now, we're very good at faking love. Oh, I love you, but... Well, I love you if... Well, I love him very much, but unfortunately, and this is how we go on so often. Look in practical ways now how this begins to work out. Look, for instance, at the good relations that would result if I begin to commit myself in the power of the Holy Spirit to be genuinely seeking another's positive good, even at my own expense. Look at what's going to happen if I, in the power of the Holy Spirit, have a consuming passion for the well-being of other people. If I begin incredibly to be interested, not in what I can gain, but in what I can give. That's the essence of the good. That's what he's talking about. 
Well, it's going to mean, first of all, some good, healthy relations. Described in verse 10 as follows. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. The two words here that are very interesting are Philadelphia and Philostorgos. They are both love words. In fact, this whole passage is full of love words. That obviously is the key. It means that I'm going to move among people in my marriage, in my family, and I'm going to be committed to doing that which is a reflection of the character and nature of God and a fulfillment of his law in the power of his spirit. Now, you can see how far we are away from the secular definitions of that which is good. Well, if it's good for you, that's fine. But if it's good for me, that's not fine. So you decide for you and you decide for me. And don't you tell me what to do and I won't tell you what to do. What has that got to do with agape? Nothing. What we're talking about here is something that is entirely based on a relationship with a loving, living God who in the power of his spirit is changing our minds and changing our attitudes. Mutual concern and mutual respect. Now you've got to be motivated for this kind of thing. Notice in verse 11 he talks about this. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Each of these phrases is a sermon in itself. If you were to look at these different phrases, you would find tremendously helpful things about some good, healthy motivation. Let me just make a comment about this expression, keep your spiritual fervor. Another translation is, keep the fires of the Holy Spirit burning. Stay aglow with the Holy Spirit. Let his enthusiasm continue to work in your life. Don't be afraid to be eager in going out of your way to follow after people and pursue them with agape. That's the motivation. Notice that he goes on to talk about serving the Lord. Interesting little thing here. When they were writing these letters, they used shorthand, like we do sometimes. And the way they used shorthand, they would simply cross out the vowels and keep the consonants. Now, the Greek word for Lord is kurios, K-U-R-I-O-S. So you cross out the U and the I and the O and you get K-R-S. The Greek word for time is kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S. So cross out the A, I and the O and what have you got? K-R-S. So in the Greek manuscripts, there was in shorthand K-R-S with a line over it, which could mean either serve the Lord or serve the times. If it's serving the Lord, then it means as unto the Lord, I'm devoting myself to you. If it's unto the times, what it means is grasp the opportunities that come your way and don't miss them. Don't miss the opportunities eagerly, enthusiastically to go out of your way and shower agape upon people. That's the essence of the good. Of course, you'll run into problems. So you have to have good reactions as well. Verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. When they misunderstand your intentions, when they accuse you of wrong motives, when they attribute to you that which is false, when they're unkind, when they're unfair, what do you do? You are joyfully confident, you're hopefully patient, and you're prayerfully persistent in pursuing people with agape. That's the good. Stuart, what's the danger of the, oh, you've got to be tolerant movement that's playing out in our society? 
Well, this, uh, oh, you've got to be tolerant movement is uh, in vogue at the, at the present time. Uh, but in, in actual fact, it, it, it doesn't work. Um, I, I remember on, on one occasion, uh, I was talking to a man and he was um, laying down the law on something or other uh, that uh, suggested that I needed to be more tolerant. And so um, while he was talking, I just moved my heel slightly onto his toe and just put some gentle pressure on it, but increased it uh you know, very, very gradually. And in the end, he objected. And uh, I realized that there was a limit to his toleration. And uh, you you would say, well, of course, I'd no business doing that. Well, of course, of, of course, I'd no business doing that. And, and he had every justification in being intolerant of my bad behavior. And so everybody knows that deep down. And so the, the issue when people say, well, we've got to be tolerant is tolerant of what? Just tell me what it is I must be tolerant of. And I'll see if I can uh, keep you happy on that regard. Stuart, if goodness is a fruit of the Spirit, what can we do to help it grow in us? I'm, I'm fascinated by, by the fact that uh, the, the Bible speaks of the activity of the Spirit and the evidence of the activity of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life uh, by saying it is the fruit of the Spirit. When we, when we have the... Um, we have the metaphor of, of fruit. We, we have the idea of the outworking of uh, life within. When apples grow on an apple tree, you say to yourself instinctively, <laughs> that's an apple tree. Um, how do you know? You can tell what kind of tree it is by the fruit that's growing on it. All right. But the interesting thing about the fruit of the Spirit is that if you look carefully into Scripture, you'll find that it isn't just the activity of the Holy Spirit that produces this kind of behavior. For for instance, the fruit of the Spirit is love, but the command of Scripture is that we are to love our neighbor as ourself, okay? The fruit of the Spirit is joy, but the command is rejoice in the Lord always. Uh, the the uh, fruit of the Spirit is peace, but the command is, if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. So we are to recognize that we, the Holy Spirit is the one who initiates desires and imparts the power and points in a new direction, but he is looking for our glad response to him, and then the fruit will grow. Before we go, remember that when you give this month to keep telling the truth broadcasts like this one going out around the world, we'll send you Stuart Briscoe's six-message series, Thinking Clearly in a Messed-Up World, to help you understand how God's Spirit works in you to transform you and renew your thoughts, no matter your circumstances. So call now to give, and remember to request your copy of Thinking Clearly in a Messed-Up World with our thanks. 1-800-889-5388. 1-800-889-5388. Or you can give online at tellingthetruth.org. We're so glad you've listened today. 
Come back next time for more biblical wisdom and experience life right here on Telling the Truth.